you take your seats, I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue to look at verses 17 through 20. We began looking at this last week by focusing in more on verse 20 with regards to this big point of what Jesus is attempting to do here in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to provide a correction to the hypocritical understanding of righteousness that has taken over Israel um, here in the first century. Through the influence, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, righteousness has come to be completely and utterly misunderstood. And there is very much a need for a correction. And who better to provide that correction than Jesus Christ, who is the very Word in flesh. Jesus Christ, who participated in providing the very Word of God in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, who embodies the very righteousness that the Word of God is attempting to describe. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20, and then I'm going to read from two, um, two uh, passage or two verses from Luke 24 to help fill out the context for us today. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us today. Open our minds as your spirit of the indwelling Christ has taught throughout the ages his people, his followers. Teach us today. Help us by your grace to open ourselves to your teaching. And help us as we see Christ afresh. And in seeing Christ as we see ourselves anew. Help us indeed to repent of things that need repentance. And to continue steadfastly in the things that are still to be done. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. From the beginning of this series, I have talked to 
uh, us that what we are doing here in the Sermon on the Mount and looking at uh, teachings of Jesus this year, we, we said from the very beginning, it was about renewing this this calling that we have from Matthew 28 to be disciples of Jesus Christ, baptized and learning to do all that Jesus taught. And to help us uh, to do this, the, the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a very uh, good place. It's a very concise place, but it is also very thick. It is very dense. There is a lot that Jesus is doing here. There's a lot that Jesus assumes his original hearers understand. There is a, a, there is a history that he assumes that they understand. There are traditions that he assumes that they understand. There is the current cultural context and historical point in time in which he is speaking that he knows that they understand. And the challenge for us is that most of us don't have that same um, starting point as the original listeners. Not all of us have that, that same assumed historical context. Not all of us understand that, that cultural context in, in which Jesus is speaking. And so I've been going very slowly trying to unpack a lot of this background so that we can see the importance of the Sermon on the Mount, not just for the time in which Jesus is speaking, but so much for us right now. Because a lot of the same challenges that Jesus is dealing with in his own people through the Sermon on the Mount are challenges that Jesus is still dealing with in his own people today. And that is, we, we have this tendency towards hypocrisy. One of the things that I have been trying to, to help us understand is that even as good conservative Christians who take the Bible seriously, we don't always allow all of the scripture to form everything about what we think, feel, do, say. We don't always let the entirety of scripture form our virtues. We don't always let the scripture be the, the sole authority of what's informing our values or our practices. We, just like every uh, generation of the people of God going back to the very, very beginning, we allow other things to influence us. We allow other things to teach us. We will mix the word of God with what appears to be, you know, wisdom from man. What Jesus is calling us to is a discipleship in which we have 100% of the scripture filtering our virtues, our values, and our practices. Because this is what it means for us to be members of his household. And it's what it means for us 
to be ambassadors of his kingdom. We are to have the virtue of Christ as set forth in the Beatitudes. We are to participate in in the, the values of Christ and in the mission of Christ as set forth in this calling and identity of being salt and light within this world. But just like at the time in which Jesus is giving this sermon, so today, sometimes, things need to get corrected. Where even those who think that they, they are approaching this scripture seriously, and those who think that they're only functioning according to the word of God, sometimes need to have it be revealed to them that that's not really the case. Jesus here is providing a correction. And we'll look at these corrections, and and he's not even providing a full set of corrections here. But the, the rest of the sermon is him saying, well, you have heard it said, but I say. He's talking to people who have Scripture. He's talking to people who think they know Scripture. He's talking to people who think they're living Scripture. And he's saying, you don't have it right. He's not impugning their motives, but he is trying to help them see that their moral imaginations have been captured by something other than the Word of God. And so this needs to be reformed by what the Word of God actually says. And beloved, what I have been proposing is that I believe we are in that same moment as the the culture in which we live continues to go in in its more rampant uh, more uh, uh, more uh, self-conscious, secular direction. It can be so easy to, to define ourselves and our mission over against the secularization of the culture rather than letting the Scripture serve as that mirror. We are prone to a hypocrisy. And one of the ways that that works itself out right now, at least in my not-so-humble opinion, is that with the way that secularization is so strongly taking over and the emotions that, that, that tends to elicit in the followers of Christ right now, sometimes we can get really loud and really vocal about the ways that the world is not living up to God's truth with barely a whisper about how we are or are not living up to God's word. Now here's the thing. Are we salt? Yes. Does that mean that we have a voice to speak into the culture? Yes. Do we have a calling as salt to be a preservative against uh, corruption? Yes. Are we light 
Yes. Do we have a role to expose darkness? Yes. Do we have a role of illuminating where, where God is to be found, to, to, to come out of the darkness and in, into the light? Absolutely. So there is a role for us to, to speak prophetically. But when we get the roles wrong and we are more ready to speak to the world in the way that it is consistently living up to what it is by rejecting the word of God and where we minimize our own interactions with the word of God in the process, what has happened is we have now entered into the same type of problem that the scribes and the Pharisees had in the first century. They were really worked up about Rome. And guess what? They had every reason to be. Rome was an idolatrous culture in, in which the, the truth of God was flipped on its head and the things that, that God said were, were good uh, were often seen as not good by the Roman culture. Things that were seen, said to be true by God were, were things said to be not true by the Roman culture. And there is no doubt that the Greco-Roman culture was infiltrating the people of God who were living in Israel in the day. It is absolutely justified that the Pharisees were utterly concerned about the paganism of the Greco-Roman culture. And they were absolutely justified in the concern that they had in the way that paganism was infiltrating the people of God. Their critique was spot on. The problem was their response. The response is not to approach righteousness by changing, by minimizing, by adding to or reducing from God's word. But this is what they were doing. They were teaching a righteousness. As we read through Matthew 23 last week, they were teaching an approach to righteousness. And in the day in which Jesus is speaking, they are seen as the authority of what righteousness is. If you would have talked to your average person in the first century living there in Israel and said, you know, if, if, if I wanted to know what righteousness is, what, what, what would I do? The answer is easy. Well, you look to the scribes and the Pharisees. You look to what they teach. You look at the way they live. They, they were the standard. And what Jesus is saying is this standard is not the right standard. In fact, this standard, it is hypocritical. And so Jesus, in this transition here of 17 through 20, as he moves from setting forth the, value, the, the virtues and values of the kingdom, he, he, he is now transitioning into the, the corrections that need to take place 
and to to provide a firm foundation of the corrections that he is about to make, he tells us that the righteousness that exceeds the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees is a righteousness that comes from the Old Testament scriptures. But not just the portions that we like, not just the portions that are easy to do, not just the portions that can be measured, but things like loving mercy, acting justly, walking humbly with God. What does God require of you, O oh man? Micah 6.8. You see, they wanted to, to argue and quibble over tithing the mint, right? This seemingly insignificant, trivial thing. Well, if we take this as seriously as we do, then surely we're taking the word of God seriously. And what Jesus says is no. The way that you approach tithing the mint is just an excuse for you to not worry about the bigger things. And so you're hypocrites. Jesus does not pull any punches as to what he thinks here. And so what Jesus does is he sets before us, just as he sets before the church in the first century, here is what needs to happen if you are going to recover that enchantment with the transcendent God who has come to you, has revealed himself to you, who has made you his children, and who has given you this this immeasurable privilege of being loved by him and serving as salt and light by which others might come to enjoy his love as well. And from the very beginning then, what Jesus sets before us is the right attitude, the the proper approach to, the right application of the Old Testament scriptures and the role that they play in his life and mission. A lot of times we don't think about Jesus that way. We don't think about Jesus having his Bible. But he did. Jesus tells us from the very beginning that without without any equivocation, I have not come to do away with or minimize the tiniest little speck of scripture but I have come to fulfill it all to the very last drop. Jesus here refers to the law or the prophets. This is another way of speaking of the Hebrew Bible. Even though a lot of modern commentators like to focus in on the law, and they like to get into the details and they like to get into the, the mire of, well, you know, how does the, the commandments of the law 
you know, relate to the new covenant believer and all that kind of stuff. And it's not that those questions are wrong or it's not that that, that isn't something that should be looked at. That's just not what Jesus is dealing with. What Jesus is dealing with is the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. What are often referred to among by you know, those who were of the Hebrew persuasion as the Tanakh. So we call it the Old Testament. Jews call it the Tanakh. T for Torah, N for Nephaim, and then a Kaf or a K, a Kaf for Kedavim. The law, the prophets, and the writings. This is a way to speak of the entire Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures. In John 10, we, well, we hear it called the Scriptures. But throughout the New Testament, you'll hear the Old Testament Scriptures called the Law, the Law and the Prophets, the Prophets and the Law, the Law of Moses and the Prophets, Moses and the Prophets, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Or here, the Law or the Prophets. This is a way of speaking of the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture. Jesus is saying, here is my Bible, and here is how I think about my Bible. And here is how I approach my Bible. And this is how I apply my Bible. And what is it? I have not come to abolish. I have come to fulfill. I have not come to abolish, he says. It's the idea of being thrown down. It's the idea, it's the same word that is used when Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed um, as not one stone is left on top of the other. Abolish here is talking about uh, what we might say today, right? Deconstructing, which has become a really popular word. I have not come to deconstruct the Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to dismantle the Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to disregard them or to replace them. My corrections, he's saying that are about to come, my corrections are the right understanding and application of them. I have not come to deconstruct them. I have come to fulfill them. And to fulfill here, this is one of the most dominant motifs that runs through the Gospel of Matthew. You will see him use this fulfillment idea over and over and over again. In 122, it, it, he uses it to talk about predictive prophecy. In 215, he talks about it in terms of embodying in 4.14, he talks about it in terms of carrying out what is required. In 26.54, he speaks of it in terms of bringing something to completion. Now, why I'm bringing this up is because this word fulfilled gets debated a lot within scholarship because people want to narrow down what it means, and, and then by narrowing it, then try to say, well, here's what all this is about. But the problem is... Matthew does the opposite. Matthew takes the word and he expands on it and he uses it to say lots of different things. When he says here that, that Jesus has come to fulfill, he doesn't simply mean, well, you know, you know, where it says that the virgin will give birth. Okay, well, he was born of a virgin. All right, check that one off. It doesn't mean simply that. It does include that. 
Did Isaiah promise that the Messiah would be born of a virgin? Yes. Does Matthew go out of his way to make sure we understand that Jesus was born of a virgin? Absolutely. So that, that simple predictive prophecy is part of it, but it goes so much more broadly. Jesus is the embodiment of all that is said in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus has carried out all that is described in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is bringing to completion everything that is described in the Old Testament scriptures. What Jesus is claiming here, guys, is that what he has come to do is to finally and fully bring to accomplishment the grand sweeping cosmic purposes of God. Jesus is bringing his father's plan to its climax. Jesus is bringing his father's plan to its intended goal. Jesus is bringing that covenant of redemption made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before creation ever took place, he is bringing this covenant to its fruition. Jesus is the yes and amen to all that God wants. Jesus is the yes and amen to all that God has planned. Jesus is the yes and amen to all that God has promised, to all that God requires, to all that God has been revealing concerning himself, what he is doing, and how we relate to it. And how thorough is this fulfillment? Jesus says, not one iota nor one dot will be missed or left out until all is done. The Oda is probably here uh, being used in reference to the Hebrew consonant Yov, which was the smallest of the letters within the Hebrew alphabet. And dot here is probably referring to the very slightest stroke that would be used to differentiate letters within the Hebrew alphabet. Now, we have something similar to, to this in English, right? If I put a lowercase g in front of you, now, not the way some of you write g's. I mean the actual, the way you're supposed to. Not the way I do it. But if I put a lowercase g in front of you and I put a lowercase j in front of you, what would be the difference? G has a little hook. It closes in the J at the top. The Hebrew has lots of letters like that. Where to differentiate one for the other, it's, it's, it's one little stroke. What Jesus is saying here is his completion and fulfillment is so utterly and complete that even the smallest letter and even the smallest stroke that differentiates some letters from other letters 
even down to that minutest detail of the words that have been used to provide a written document of the words that have been spoken, even down to that slightest little minute detail, none of that is going to be left undone. Everything that God has revealed of himself is seen to be true in Jesus Christ. No one has seen the Father. We, we read earlier in the service from John 1, and yet Jesus is revealing the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, Jesus says, if you have known me, you know the Father. Jesus is revealing God the Father to us. And the written word also reveals who God is. The law itself with all of its different commands and requirements and as it describes what holiness and righteousness is, all it's doing is trying to provide for us a description of who God is. This is how holy he is. This is how righteous he is. And yet, he's actually far surpasses all of that because even the written language can't fully capture how holy and righteous he is. And we as God's fallen people, we are not holy. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. And so we need the law to describe for us who God is. But the law and the prophets are not just a series of commands. The law and the prophets provide this grand sweeping narrative of, of who God is and what he's doing. In fact, if, if you wanted to think of, about this grand sweeping plan, you can think of it here in what Jesus is describing. You can think of it as that, that old 60s television show, My Three Sons. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that. I remember the reruns. You know, and the little cartoon at the beginning with the three sets of legs and the catchy tune. I'm not going to do it for you. The whole of, of what God is doing in redemptive history can be summed up as my three sons. Adam in the scripture is called a son of God, and, and he is this first son of God that, that, that comes into history. And, and as the son of God, he was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, as the Shorter Catechism says. And, and as he was created in the likeness of God in these ways, he was called to trust his father and, and to live according to what his father was revealing. And he was promised that if he did that, he would enter into a higher existence in a, in a sharing of the glorified existence of God, where he would not just be in the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of God that can be lost, but that he would come into that glorification, that glorified status that could never be lost. But Adam didn't trust and he didn't obey. 
But God didn't give up. He promised that another son would come. When Israel comes on the scene, we're told that this is God's son. And the question is, well, is this the son that was promised? Is this the son that that will be faithful unlike Adam, that first son? And and what we see is, is that Israel, as the son of God, starts off already sinful. And even though they are redeemed by God, as as God comes and he takes up his presence within them, and as he removes them from bondage and slavery in Egypt, as he goes with them through the judgment of of going through the desert wilderness, wandering with them, and then brings them into the, the promised land, the question is, will this son, this redeemed son, will will he be faithful? And what do the law and the prophets show us? No, this is not the son that we're looking for. But then the son that was promised, the son that is being sought after, the son that would be perfectly and utterly and completely devoted to his father, breaks into history. And he comes before his people who are being led astray as to what it means, what it looks like to be faithful. And he comes to them and says, look, the blind guides that you are listening to are only going to perpetuate the brokenness that has existed within humanity since Adam and has been revealed even by in the, within the redeemed in Israel. What has been needed is a faithful son who would love his father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. And Jesus tells us that as he has come as that son, he says, I have come and I'm willingly within my humanity, submitting to my Father and to his word. And I take all of it for being what it is, the very words of my Father. The practice of the scribes and Pharisees was that they liked to debate over which laws were more important than others. The practice of the scribes and the Pharisees is they like to set up these, these different levels and they like to, to, they like to talk about, well, here are the really important ones, here are the ones that are not as important. They like to make all these distinguishing marks and they like to separate it all out. And the reason they did that ultimately was because they were trying to make it easier to fulfill. They were approaching God's word from the perspective of, well, let's take out the stuff that's too difficult or let's rework the stuff that's too difficult by creating these extra laws that God hasn't given so that when I can do these extra things that I've come up with, then I can consider myself as someone who's keeping the law. But the purpose of the law was not given by God to Israel in order to say, okay, here's the stuff you can do, and if you'll just simply do it, here's what I'll do. 
The law was a guardian, Paul tells us from Galatians 3. It was a guardian that was there to keep us in place until the true Son would come. And the true Son has come. And the true Son did not need a guardian because he was the very embodiment of his God's, of his Father's truth, of his Father's goodness, of his Father's beauty. And the relationship that you and I have then in Jesus Christ to his Father, to him, to his Bible, is that by way of our union with Christ, we have all now become true sons in Christ. And so the question for us, as those who are are declared to be by way of our justification, and those who are being made into by way of our sanctification, True sons of God, the question for us as those who are his sons, as those who are his ambassadors, what is our attitude toward God's word? What is our approach to God's word? What is, how are we applying God's word to ourselves are we doing like the Pharisees and scribes and picking and choosing are we doing like the the, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and reducing or minimizing the difficulty and the weightiness so that we can feel better about how well we're doing Do we maximize or do we minimize? Do we leave some of it out? Or do we approach it as a whole? Do we allow God's word to determine what we value and and, and the virtues that we embody and, and the practices of how we live that out across the board without any reservation? Or do we allow some of the word of God to filter us? But in other places, we'd rather listen to other voices. Now, I can answer for me. It's an easy one. I love, and look, I'm really good at this, by the way. I I can come up with some really cool ways of minimizing God's word in my life. And I mean creative. If I, I'm not creative at all except for in this one area. I can come up with some gymnastics to get myself out from underneath something that God is saying. I can find all kinds of ways where in a particular area of my life I would rather listen to the wisdom that, that, is, that I can read from a book or, or, or hear online or, or maybe you know let the news determine how I think about something that's going on in the world. It can be really easy to allow trying to distinguish 
myself from, from bad theories and bad philosophies that are, that are taking over, but not on the basis of weighing them according to the word of God and keeping the meat and spitting out the bones, but just utterly and completely outright, well, I'll just reject it. The things that are being said by this group, they're motivated by this certain political philosophy, so I'm not going to listen to anything they have to say. But the reality is, typically, all the different groups that are out here, they have a piece of something. I don't say that to say is so that we should buy into all of it. What I'm saying is we don't want to buy into any of it unless it is coming from the word of God. And that requires work on our part to take capture every thought to make it obedient to Christ. But beloved, one of the reasons we don't want to minimize the word of God within our lives and and to approach it like the hypocrites and the Pharisees is because the very fulfillment of everything that is there is in the person of Christ. And beloved, the person of Christ has taken up residence within your heart through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And so let us be a people who walk by the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh, even when we have justified those desires on the basis of something that sounds really smart or really intellectual or really practical when what we're really doing is trying to make something easy and something that doesn't require as much faith. Beloved, what is our attitude? What is our approach? How are we applying Scripture to ourselves? Let's start there, even as we grow up in our salvation and become better ambassadors, whereby we also are used by God to reveal his truth, his goodness, and his beauty to this dying world that is in need of his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to start with ourselves. Even on this Mother's Day, we we can remember as being little ch- little children as our mothers would pull us aside when we would be getting worked up about something and when we'd want to whine and complain about something our brother or our sister was doing to us and hearing the, the wise words of our mothers reminding us to look at ourselves first. Father, help us to to truly allow your word to sift us because your word is it is the source of life 
And yes, there is death within us that needs to be cut away and that it needs to be trimmed off. And, and that is never fun. It is not easy. And yet it, it's what produces health and growth. And so, Lord, help us to be those who who look into the mirror of Scripture and who do not walk away and forget what we have seen. Help us not merely to be hearers, but to be doers of your word, but even down to the very depth of the minutest detail. Lord, shape our attitudes towards your Scripture by the attitude of the Christ who dwells within us. And as you make us like Christ, Lord, help us to cultivate that desire for your word, for us first. And as we taste of its sweetness, and as we experience its sanctification, and as we get to know you through this this living and active word, light our lives on fire by the transcendent realities that make us good ambassadors for a transcendent kingdom that has come in Jesus Christ and will come in its fullness when he returns. Father, may our lives our words, our actions, our attitudes, our good works, so glorify you that people will see them. And even if they reject them and revile them, they will give you the glory. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.